want to just take a moment and invite you um, to pray with me as we enter God's Word this morning. Father, we ask that you would speak your truth in a way that pierces our hearts, that, um, Father, in a way that we grasp, not just intellectually, God, we, we need to live this out, Father, we need you to apply your grace so we can understand it and uh, perform it. May it become something that is so ingrained in us, God, that it changes our lives and we, we live differently in response to it. We can't outside of the grace of Jesus Christ. And so we ask you for it now. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's an old uh, Twilight Zone episode that I'm about to spoil for you, but uh, that's too bad. You had like 50 years uh, to watch it. This man is in trouble. I don't remember what, his, what he was convicted for, but he is convicted... But rather than being put in a jail cell, he's put on a planet by himself in isolation. They bring him supplies, they drop him stuff, but he lives in a shack like on Mars or something. Like it's just a desert and he's by himself. Once in a while, uh, you know, the warden sends somebody to visit uh, with the supplies and he's so isolated. He, he loves the company even if it's just for five minutes. So like, oh, I need to get back in the rocket, man. I can't stay and hang out. Out of mercy, uh, this um, officer on one of these visits brings an android, a robot. Uh, she's a beautiful young lady, um, uh, doesn't look like a robot, and she likes the games that he likes. She reads the books he likes to read. He wants to go on a walk, she'll go on a, she'll go on a walk. This companion. And so the episode turns from him being disgruntled and hating this planet and hating being away from earth and being away from people and being away from real things and, and just being stuck in this place by himself and to try to alleviate that, to distract him from the pain of his isolation, he's given a cyborg, a robot, to kind of keep him company during this time that seems interminable. He's going to be in this planet for who knows how long. Nobody believes him that he didn't do it or whatever the situation is. So the episode starts, he gets to know this robot, he starts to hang out with this robot, and he's kind of falling in love with this robot. It's a little weird, but it's only weird because she's a robot. But you kind of feel his pain, you're like, yeah, he's isolated, he's by himself, and, and who knows if the judge is going to hear his case, hear his plea for revisiting the case and turn this thing over, who knows if that's ever going to happen and so kind of giving up on the hope that he would ever get off this planet he starts emotionally and personally investing in this robot what happens, the judge does hear the case, turns it over and says get this guy off that planet, he needs to be back on earth, so the officer that's had mercy on this man, goes to the planet and says hey I just, I'm running another errand we just have just enough room to get you in here leave all the stuff, leave all the things you can't even bring a book, a pen we have no room, there's no gas but we can fit you and we're going to take you back we, you, your case has been heard and you're free now he doesn't want to go because he'd have to leave her behind right we don't have room for her so now he's caught, do I go back to earth or do I cling to this thing that I've become invested in and the officer starts arguing with him it's not a her 
It's an it. No, but, but, but she's real. But she's, she's not real, dude. And the big spoiler, this officer pulls out a gun, shoots the cyborg in the head. She falls over and there's springs and coils all over the place. And then in that shock, he realizes, man, I almost gave up Earth for a robot. Now, the reason why I give you that story is to set you up for this parable that Jesus explains, which is one of Jesus' reasons he gives why we should pray. And Jesus basically says, look, this time on, your, on earth, you're, you're like on another planet. You are an alien, right? You're, you're a citizen of a different kingdom, but you're stuck in this world. You're not of this world, but you're in this world. And you're awaiting the return of the king who says, I'm going to bring my kingdom. I'm going to wipe out wickedness. Well, where is he? And our temptation is to lose hope, to grow weary in the waiting. And little by little, we start conforming to this world, investing in this world, liking this world, thinking the world, what the world has, our friendships and our careers and our cars and our things. That's it. And then when a preacher talks about Jesus returning, like, yeah, you, preachers have been preaching that for 2,000 years. For 2,000 years. And so I start getting invested in the things that are fake. Now, here's the difference between that Twilight Zone episode and what Christ promised. Christ isn't going to show up on the scene and argue with you. He's not going to show up on the scene and debate with you. He's not going to shoot the robot in the head to expose it to you. When he shows up, that's it. You're on one side or the other. And if your heart has grown cold, if you've lost faith, and you've grown weary in the waiting, you'll be on the wrong side. That shot to the robot is the sermon today. It's what Scripture provides now for you to know where your investment should be. And that there are certain things that are very alluring around us, but they're fake, and they lead to nothing. And that one day what we kind of gave up on actually is going to happen. And when the king shows up, he's looking for his citizens and his citizens look a certain way. That's why we're doing the Sharp series. What does a citizen look like? I can talk the citizen talk and claim, that, claim citizenship, but am I actually a citizen? What are the things that, so how do citizens behave? What, what do we do? What do we like? So we talk about citizens in the kingdom, disciples, believers, they study scripture. What does it mean we all go to seminary, we all take courses, but, but we study Scripture. We huddle together, we get together with other Christians. We don't do this on our own. We relay the gospel to, or we assist the church, and we relay the gospel to other people that are outside the church. And then today we'll see that disciples pray, and we pray persistently. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 18. I think a, a somewhat simple parable. None of the parables are actually simple. Of course, a parable is a story, sort of like what I just did with the Twilight Zone episode. Jesus tells a story, and then he draws analogies from it. And no analogy is perfect, but there's parallel there for you to understand the, the life that you're living and what God is calling you to do. And it's the parable of the persistent widow. But before we jump into that, there's the setup. The parable doesn't come out of nowhere. Jesus just finished telling his disciples, I'm going to return. And just like in Noah's day, people are going to be running around, invested in their careers, invested in their relationships, invested in the, their hobbies, 
And even though they're told about rain, they're like, whatever. Even though they see the ark, they're like, that's weird. And then when the rain comes, they're not ready. He talks about Lot and his wife, how they had to escape this city. And the city was like, whatever. Nothing's going to happen to us. We could do whatever we want. We can do whatever we want. We read about Sodom and Gomorrah and their immorality. And Lot is escaping. And his wife looks back. I mean, she's still invested. She's like, oh, I want the robot, though. She gets left, right? She freezes right there. And Lot escapes without his wife. So Jesus reminds him at the end of Luke 17, like, hey, I'm coming back, and it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. People that call themselves Christians are little by little going to be distracted by the world, and they're going to be tempted to look back and not be ready for the coming. And you know what? When I come, you don't have to look for it, guess if it's there. We don't have to convene together. Did Jesus come on Tuesday? Because I'm not sure. He's like, it's going to be as clear as lightning in the sky. You're not going to have to wonder. So don't spend your time pouring over the newspapers trying to figure out the time of my coming. Spend your time being a citizen so that when I come, you've got a ticket to the ark. And having a ticket doesn't mean you look just like the world. You're different. You live separately from them. You don't get invested in the world. Your investment is in the coming kingdom, and you don't lose heart. So he tells them, I'm coming back. He knows they're going to get antsy. He knows that Christians are going to be tempted to give up on the return. And his prescription is pray. And don't give up in praying. Don't give up in praying. And now the parable is to help you not give up in praying for his return. Here it is in chapter 18. Jesus tells the the disciples, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. In this particular instance, Luke just gives you the big idea right up front. He's not going to wait for you to interpret it. He wants you to know what the point is right up front. So as you read the story, you don't get distracted by uh, random details. The point of the story is to pray and not lose heart. If you're driving home today, you're like, I'm not quite sure I understood everything in the parable. That's okay. Did you get the point, though? The point is to always pray and not lose heart. That's also translated uh, to not grow weary, to not get tired, to not start drooping and sagging and then give up, but to persistently pray, to always pray. And I don't think Jesus means pray every second of every minute of every hour. You don't do anything else. Give up your job. Give up, you know, eating and just pray till you die. I think he means not giving up in praying persistently. A regular habit of praying that you don't give up, that that doesn't start going backwards on you. So he tells them this parable to an effect. The purpose, the effect of it is that they ought always to pray and not grow weary, not get tired not give up, not lose heart. So here's the story. It's a short one. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in the city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. So let's pause there. You have two characters. That's it. Well, three if you count adversaries. But we don't know exactly who they are or what the widow's problem was. But he describes two people that are kind of on opposite ends of a spectrum. You have a judge who has power to help, and then you have a widow who has no help. 
And if she has no help, that probably means not only, obviously, as a widow, she doesn't have a husband, but she probably doesn't have a brother, she doesn't have a brother-in-law, she doesn't, her dad is dead, her grandpa's dead, she doesn't have sons to take care of her, because it would just default, the responsibilities of her care would default to her closest kin. There are none, apparently. And somebody has wronged her, and she has no one to stick up for her. She doesn't have her own lawyer. She doesn't have a system in place. The only thing she can do is go to this judge who has the power to do something. So she's completely helpless, but she has adversaries against her, and she needs justice. She needs someone to stand up and go, that's wrong. I'm going to fix that. I'm going to go after the adversaries and help the one who's in trouble. Now, he has the power to do that. He's the opposite end of the spectrum. He has the power to do it. But he doesn't want to do it. And the reason why he doesn't want to do it is because he doesn't care. He doesn't care about her. He doesn't care about people. He doesn't care what the tabloids are going to say, what the newspapers are going to say. You know why? Because he doesn't respect people at all. But what about God, man? What about what God thinks? I don't care about him either. He neither fears man or respects people. Right? Now that is the complete opposite of what a Christian is. Well, what, are, what, are, what are the top two commandments? Love God, love neighbor as yourself. Well, he doesn't care about God and he doesn't care about neighbor. He's the opposite. So this is a total degenerate <laughs> in power, but he doesn't care about her situation at all. At all. So you have this judge in the city, doesn't fear God, doesn't respect man, woman, child, people generic man there and then verse 3 you've got the widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying give me justice against my adversary now she came once she came twice it says she kept coming right so it wasn't a one-time thing I don't know he didn't listen she came again she came again she came again she kept coming and verse 4 for a while he refused of course he would refuse he doesn't care why waste his time there's nothing in it for him she doesn't have money she doesn't she won't give him fame So for a while, he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Hmm, self, though I neither fear God nor respect man. I mean, he owns it. I don't care about God, and I don't care about people. But I should probably listen to her case. Why? Selfish motives. Verse 5, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Interesting that he knows it's justice. He knows it's right. He has the power to right this wrong and that it is a wrong. The adversaries are wrong. She's right, and that would be justice. Still doesn't care. The only reason why he's going to give justice is because of her persistent coming to him, petitioning him, and beating him down with it. She's not growing weary in the asking She's asking so much in her persistence, she's making him grow weary in it, see? She's she's flipping it on the judge. You're not going to get me tired from knocking. I'm going to knock so much that you get tired of saying no. And you'll do it, not for the right reasons, you'll do it for the wrong reasons, but you still do it. And you'll grant me the justice that I deserve or that is right for me to have. I will give her justice because he said she's bothering me, but not just bothering She's, she's going to beat me down by her continual coming. Now, sometimes you'll watch two teams in a sports match, and you'll say, well, that team won against the other team. And 
And other times you might say, that was a total beatdown. Right? And he's like, she started with pestering. Now it's really bothering me. And if I let it persist, it's going to, it's going to beat me up. She's going to take me down with her persistence. Without power, without position or prestige, she just has persistence, right? She, she beats him down with the continual asking, and he'll do it. Now, what's weird there is the Lord is, the Jesus is going to draw a contrast uh, or draw a parallel between her and Christians and the judge and God. She's persistent. We're supposed to be persistent. God responds for justice. Right, the judge responds and gives justice. God responds and gives justice. But what's unsettling about the parable is it makes it sound like God is up there going, Ugh, I don't care about people, but if you're going to pray that often, I'll do it. But that's where it is not a comparison, but a contrast. It is a, a much more than argument. If it's true here, if justice happens here for the degenerate, uncaring judge, how much more will justice be given by a righteous, caring judge? So we're not supposed to read this parable and think God is uh, begrudgingly answering prayer. Or that when God delays to answer prayer, he delays because he doesn't listen or because he doesn't care. It's the opposite is Jesus' point. God is the opposite of this judge. What's the same is that we're to be persistent What's the same is that God will grant the justice. What's different is that God wants to do it. He cares to do it. Jesus makes that point abundantly clear. He says, verse 6, And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. See how he emphasizes the judge is unrighteous. Hear what the unrighteous judge says. What he just said. I'm going to give her justice. And will not God... Give justice to his elect. In other words, he's the one that chose them. He's the one that set his love upon them. When you read that word elect, you know, transferred over to the Old Testament, or from the Old Testament rather, the elect are those upon whom he sets his love. And so you've got this unrighteous judge that does it even though he could care less about them. And then you've got this righteous God who does it because he's the one that elected them. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. He will give justice to them speedily. Now, I I just need to admit that many of us might see that. Maybe you're thinking it right now. As you see that and you go, you know, Jesus says, will he delay long? And you're like, yeah. He's delayed long. How many Christians have been killed over the past 2,000 years? How many Christians are being killed now? I mean, the disciples that he's talking to were almost all killed. That we know of, right? It's, history bears that out. So many, many Christians have been uh, jailed, persecuted, tortured, killed, martyred. And all they had to do to get out of it was deny Christ. Could they have asked, where are you, God? Sounds like Jesus is saying, pray it, and he'll, he'll come right away, speedily. All you have to do is pray, and then he'll get you out of the jail, get you out of 
the country, get you out of the situation, get you out of the awkward spot that you're put in. It wouldn't be awkward if you weren't in a world that hates Christ and you follow Christ. It wouldn't be awkward, but it is awkward. It is tough, maybe more than awkward, difficult, painful, harsh, torturous even. It sounds like God's, Jesus is saying, all you have to do is ask, and God is going to speedily do it. But I think that's a superficial reading for a number of reasons. One reason is speedily in comparison to what? You know, in comparison to eternity, that's one thing. In comparison to my own impatience, that's another thing. So who, who's to say how many years God has to respond to the pleas of his people before we say, God, that took too long? Second, built into this entire teaching is a delay. In other words, right there in uh, 18.1, he tells the parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Now, why would they lose heart if God just responded immediately? The only reason why they're tempted to lose heart is because there's a delay. Right? (laughs) Because there's a delay, because there's a time gap between the suffering and the pain that we're experiencing and God coming and vindicating us and putting wickedness down... Because there's that gap, we're tempted to give up. Dude would have never fell in love with a robot if he knew that next week, on Monday at 2, I'm getting picked up. just wouldn't have happened. It's the giving up that does it. So Jesus knows they're going to be tempted to give up and that everyone who ever reads Luke is going to be tempted to give up because there's a delay. So why would he say speedily? Well, theologians and commentators debate, and there's all kinds of reasons that they give. One of the reasons is sometimes God intervenes now. It doesn't have to be the book of Revelation commences. Sometimes God does relieve suffering now. If we know of a pastor who's in jail right now, we can pray for his release. That's, I think, part of this whole thing. But I don't think that fully answers because Jesus is obviously coming on at the heels of the end of chapter 17 where he's talking about that final return, right, where Jesus comes in riding the horse and he's got the sword and he puts down wickedness and persecution and vindicates his suffering saints and it's over for them for the adversaries and because that's in mind I think speedily here just means he's not going to ignore it he's not going to delay forever he's going to do it in his right time in his right time and I think it also means that It'll be that lightning in the sky. In other words, it's not like God is going to roll out a long plan of vindication. When Jesus comes, it's he does it. He does it speedily. right? But he's not promising it, obviously, for their generation. He's not promising it for our generation. What he's asking is, will uh, we pray in a way that we don't lose heart even when he hasn't come yet and he didn't come from my mother and he didn't come from my grandmother and he didn't come when my great-grandmother prayed it. Eh, why should I pray? And then I lose heart. Don't lose heart because I am am coming. You might remember a time where your parents promised to pick you up and this is before you could Instagram them, text them, you know, all, all number of ways to communicate with them. You had to hike it over to a phone booth, look for change, Right? And you're just sitting there waiting for your parents to pick you up. And it just felt like forever. 
from their perspective, it probably didn't feel like forever because they're running errands, they're grabbing food, they're doing this, and they're on their way, and they'll come at the appropriate time. They will get you, but you're just sitting there with nothing to do. There were no iPads. Right? You're just sitting there, and you have no idea when they're coming. They're, you can't the, find my phone app and track where they're at. Oh, they're in Outgrow. We'll be here in five minutes. There is none of that. You just had to wait there. Well, as torturous as that was, you look back on it now, and you're like, well, it was a couple hours. You've lived decades past that when you were a kid. Now maybe you do it to your kids. Although they might be able to find you on their phone. It's a different point is perspective in the moment it felt like forever but looking back on it later you're like well that wasn't forever well how long was it I don't remember did the sun go down no the sun didn't go down I mean it was it was long but it wasn't was it multiple days on end did you sleep in the street no I came home we had you know same okay it wasn't that bad in retrospect but in the moment wasn't it hard to just sit there on the street corner in the blazing heat and you didn't know when dad was coming? Yeah, of course it would. So in the moment, we don't have that perspective that we'll have later when a million years from now we'll look back and like, yeah, it took a couple thousand years, right? But when he comes, he'll come speedily and he'll come, here's the key, he'll come in response to the prayers of his people. It's a biblical truth that God has set a time for his son's return. It's also a biblical truth that that time is brought in through the prayers of his people. You're like, well, which one is it? What if we stop praying? What if we do pray? But the Bible has these truths that we hold in tension that on the other side of it, God will say, see, the saints prayed it in, and at this time I came. But we are not to go, well, God already set his time. It doesn't matter if I pray, and then we don't pray. Oops, oops. Now that's missing the point. That's letting your theology get in the way. Your inability to put things together to get in the way of the clear point. Because what is the clear point? To always pray and not give up. We don't get to give up because the return is sure. Because the return is sure, that should inspire us to pray persistently. And we pray in, actually, the return of Jesus Christ. I remember for years as as a Christian, I thought, I shouldn't pray for the return of Christ because there's more people to reach. I forgot, but that's another point as to why a delay is built in. Jesus gives them the Great Commission right at the end of Matthew, and he says, preach the gospel to a couple people, and then I'll be right back. No, he says, to the ends of the earth. Well, how long does that take? I want you to go home and Google unreached people groups and allow the shock to set in how many people have yet to hear the gospel in this world, in this globalized age of technology, there's still people out there like, who's Jesus? Never heard of him. We're not talking about like a couple hundred people. So to the the ends of the earth, Jesus couldn't have meant, I'll come tomorrow. So there's this expansive thing, and as that's happening, we're tempted to lose heart, but rather than lose heart, we pray, and what do we pray? Well, what did the widow pray? The widow is being harassed by adversaries, and she's asking the judge to deal with them. It's like a kid coming to the principal and saying, there's a bully. Every time I'm walking the hallway, he's trying to steal my lunch money. Okay? Now, the principal might listen or not listen. God's point, Jesus' point is, God is a principal. He's going to listen, and he's going to deal with them at the right time. 
right? He's going to bring justice. So this is not about pray persistently for that car. Don't give up praying for that house. Don't give up praying for that spouse, right? We, we pray requests, and that's okay. But what this is talking about is feeling the heat and the pressure of living for Christ in a world that hates Christ. That's what this is about. And brothers and sisters, I wonder if some of us lose heart in prayer because we don't feel that heat. If we're just quiet enough, if we just go to the same venues, enjoy the same sources of entertainment, laugh at the same jokes, go to the same schools, in what way am I living against the grain? I'm kind of just living with the grain. And if I live with the grain, I don't rock the boat. If I don't rock the boat, nobody's mad that I'm in the boat. Right? It's the person that's constantly talking about Jesus. It's the person that is not satisfied that your friends, your co-workers, your neighbors are lost. You're not satisfied with that. You're not content with that. And you'd rather take the heat of some uncomfortable conversations, of getting maybe pushed aside, or maybe having friends become enemies, or losing a job, or having to go to a different school. Whatever the cost might be, it's costly. Jesus said, you've got to pick up your cross and follow me. What do you mean? I thought you did the cross so I could have a happy life. No, I did the cross so you can do the cross. I endured suffering so you can endure suffering. I took revoke so you can take revoke. And if you're going to follow me, Jesus says, you're going to follow me as the servant follows the master. Do the things I do and lean into the things I lean into. And it's not going to be easy in this world. And sometimes we make it easier by just backpedaling on being very loud or intentional with our Christianity. We privatize it maybe. And then once we privatize it, it even dwindles from there. Where what the world says and what the world, how the world views things dominates our minds and our hearts. But the Christian that leans in is going to have adversaries and that's the person that's going to be pressed to pray. So I'm just reverse engineering this thing. If we've got lack of prayer, it might be because of lack of heat. If we've got lack of heat, it might be because there's not a lot of adversaries. If there's not a lot of adversaries in my life, it might be because I don't live adversarially to them. But if I love Christ and they hate him, and I preach him, and they don't like it, now some will come because of it, right? We'll be fishers of men. But some are going to hate it and give us trouble and flack, maybe even persecution. And when that happens, we're going to go, God, where's the justice? I'm living for you. And all I'm getting is difficulty. That's where God wants us. He wants us to pray. Because prayer is an expression of our dependence upon him. And it's the opposite of a Christian to live a life that's not dependent on him. So why is P at the end of the sharp profile? Why is, why is it at the end? Because it wraps up everything together. You're not going to relay the gospel to other people if you're not prayerful. You're not going to assist the church in the way you should. If you're not prayerful, you're not going to study the word. You can study the word intellectually, but do you really grasp it? If we're not studying scripture prayerfully, right? Think of Paul in Ephesians listing all the armor, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. And when he gets to prayer, it's not a weapon. It's just pray, guys. All the weapons are like activated by this power of prayer. Pray at all times. Pray in the Spirit. Real quickly, I want you to see how Jesus or Luke emphasizes this. He's got this parable of the persistent widow. He wants you to not give up. 
And then he ends with this question at the end of verse 8. I tell you, God will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, he returns to the point. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find anyone praying? Isn't that what you would think he would say? He's returning to the main point. And back in the beginning, verse 1, the main point was, I want you to pray. But when he wraps it up, he changes it from prayer to just faith. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? You're like, whoa, I thought we were just talking about prayer. Now you're talking about faith at all. Well, will any, when I finally finish building the ark and I come and I'm like, time to sail off, all aboard, will anyone come aboard? Is there going to be anybody left to join? Well, he's implying not many. Of course, we know from Scripture he calls his elect and he preserves them. But he's implying that this is going to be difficult, this is going to be tough, and the reason why he's changing it from prayer to faith is because they're the same thing. What is someone of faith? How does someone of faith live in this world? In persistent prayer. Because they're surrounded by adversaries. Well, what if I'm not surrounded by adversaries and I don't really pray that much? You might want to revisit faith. Is that a hard word? It is a hard word. This is the gun blowing up the head of your cyborg. This is Luke saying, wake up. Now let me show you a couple ways you may have fallen asleep. He's going to give three portraits of what a Christian looks like. We're not going to unpack it long. This is going to be quick. He follows this parable with three pictures of what a Christian should look like. The first is negative. The second is positive. The third is negative. Don't look like this. Do look like this. Don't look like this. The first one is the Pharisee. And the Pharisee doesn't depend on Christ because instead of depending on Christ, he depends on himself for his own righteousness. That's the very next paragraph after this parable. Don't be like that guy, depending on yourself for your own righteousness rather than depending on Christ. Let me skip the positive one. The second negative one is the rich ruler. Say, hey, how do I make sure I'm in? Well, do you follow the commandments? I follow all the commandments. Do you? Do you? What's the first commandment? Don't worship anything else. He's like, give all your money away. He's like, I can't do that. You can't even follow the first commandment. Your money is your God. So the first one, don't be like the Pharisee who depends on himself for his righteousness rather than on Christ. The second negative, don't be like the rich ruler who depends on his wealth instead of depending on Christ. Jesus said, leave your wealth and follow me. Don't depend on that, depend on me. And he's like, nah, I can't. And walks away sad that he can't. But he's fallen in love with the cyborg of wealth. And he gets left behind on the planet. Then Luke inserts this middle one in between the two negative ones. What should you look like? The powerful Pharisee with all the regalia and the law memorized? Or the second guy who's got wealth and power and prestige? And if he speaks, everyone listens. Even though he's young, he's like, you know, this this power house person in the community. He's like, no, little infants. Infants, they don't contribute to society. I remember flying out to L.A. once to hang out with a relative of mine who was trying to make it in the acting world and hanging out with a bunch of her friends and they were just talking about like kids. Ugh, ugh. Kids, they get in the way. They get in the way. Fast forward to a recent award like, I killed my child so I can have this award. Children do get in the way of your selfish life. They, they need stuff. You've got to constantly pay attention and change diapers and feed them, right? 
So the Pharisee is dependent on himself instead of Christ. The ruler is dependent on himself instead of Christ. What's a child like? Completely dependent on someone else beside themselves. Because left to themselves, they die. Why are those three portraits right after this thing on prayer? I'll tell you why. Because prayer is how you depend on God. If your life is prayerless, you're not depending on God. Period. We can go scripture after scripture after scripture. What should you do with their anxiety? Take it before him in prayer. Philippians 4. Prayer is verbalizing your dependence on God. I don't have this, God. I don't got this. I need you for this. I'm surrounded by adversaries. I live in a world that pulls me. Every day I need to ask you to lead me not in temptation. Because if you don't guide me, I will step into the temptation. It's everywhere. Deliver me from evil. So Jesus tells this parable not so that we could see God as a grumpy God who doesn't want to listen. He wants us to see God as a a judge that is right. And his son will return and vindicate his saints. But it doesn't look like it yet. And so it's easy to just get wrapped up in politics and the cares of this world and hobbies and distractions and other things that we would depend on. But God's calling us to depend on him. And if we really depend on him, as Christians do, we pray. Because we recognize without prayer, I don't have God showing up in my life like he would if I didn't pray or did pray. And if God doesn't show up in my life, I'm in trouble. See? And so it is is affluence and comfort that suffocates prayerfulness in our lives. So two quick points of application, and then I'll close. They're not, they're not great. You're not going to be wowed by them. You're not going to be like, wow, I never made that connection. I mean, I hope not. But the first one is just, if, if you don't make a plan to pray, you're basically planning to not pray. If I ask you after church, maybe I will, but I probably won't, but if I do ask you, what's your plan for prayer? And you're like, I don't know, I mean, just here and there. You're basically, you're not praying. And this is true for myself. You know, I, I need to have a time. And not only that for myself, I need to have like what I'm going to pray that day. Otherwise, I'm just kind of closing my eyes and I'm kind of floating around like God. And it's just all my worries start flooding everything and I forget to praise him. And I need something a little more structured than that. So everyone's going to, it might look a little different. But do you have a time to daily, right, daily come before the Lord Without the distractions, not while you're doing dishes, not while the podcast is going, you're talking to your kid, but you're also praying. Do that. That's great. But you need a time where you just come before him and just pray. Like, you're going to have a serious conversation with somebody. Don't you go into a room by yourself and close the door to limit distractions. This is a serious phone call. Someone's in the ER. You're not doing that while watching a movie. It's serious. You block distractions. Well, we need to have times where we come before the Lord and say, God, this is serious. I'm surrounded by adversaries. I'm surrounded by anxieties. This is really hard to live for you in this world. Will you show up? And we don't just pray show up now, but come. To return to the point that I was making earlier, we are supposed to spread the gospel in this world. And I almost, for a long time, almost felt guilty if I ever asked Jesus to return when there's still so many people that haven't heard him yet. 
But you remember, if you have a read Revelation, you get past all this stuff that some of it you understand, maybe some of it you don't understand. It's kind of scary, but you know the point is what Christians all agree upon. Jesus is coming back, and at the end, John is not, but hold off, Lord. He's like, Lord Jesus, come. Come on that horse. Come put an end to all this craziness. Come. And it's not wrong to pray that. In fact, it's right to pray that, and Jesus is inviting us to pray that. But we pray it when we feel pressed. And we feel pressed when we live for Christ in this world. Second, we do that together. We do that together. If we're desperate for this church to make an impact in this community, that desperation will show up in our prayer times. In our prayer times. It is simultaneously very encouraging to me. Sunday mornings when I gather to pray and I'm not just up here by myself and we've got people that come and I'm encouraged by that. I am also simultaneously discouraged when for years I talk about the importance of prayer, the importance of prayer and it's like, nah, I got to do my hair. I got I to gotta sleep an extra 10 minutes. I don't know what it is. And it's like if Jesus is returning, man. And when he's, when he's looking for citizens, what's the top mark that he's looking for? Prayer. Persistent prayer, not I gave up on it prayer. So it's not a requirement to pray on Sunday mornings. That's not the only way that we can pray together. But Sunday mornings, it's 15 minutes, 9.30 and 9.45. That's a time that we carve out like, hey, before we rush into praying and receiving, give me, give me, give me worship, give me prayer, you know, give me the word I want to receive, and then I'm going to go live the rest of my week. It's the time for us to go, God, before we rush into this whole service, would you show up here? We don't want it to just be a service. We want this to be, you know, where you show up and encounter with you, and we, we pray that in together. So I encourage you, think about ways that you can implement a plan for you personally. Be prayerful in your life. Pray for the return of Christ. Pray for persecuted Christians. And think about ways that you can commit to gathering together with us to pray. Next Sunday evening as well is another time when we have a get-together. Well, let's do it now as we come before the Lord. Father, as we close in this song, we're thankful that uh, you were clear in your word about, the, about certain things, that even if you're unclear about other things. We don't know when Christ's return is. We don't have a, a day. We don't have a year. Uh, but we do see the world worsening. We see the grip getting tighter. We see the pull into the world's pattern getting stronger. And we look around us and... We see Christians growing weaker. We see some churches flickering. We're thankful that's not true for all churches. We're thankful that you keep and preserve people that are serious about you. And I pray for anyone in here this morning who um, maybe is just lost in the distraction of this world or just stuck in this sort of malaise. Uh, Father, I pray that we would be ready for the return of Jesus Christ and that we would go about the business of this kingdom conveying the gospel to others, living out the gospel ourselves together in community in a faithful church. As we close in the song, would you fortify us and strengthen us and give us the resolve we need to do that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and we'll close in the song.